Welcome back. This is your host and therapist, Audrey Grunst. Boy, do I have a good episode to share today. It's a story that most of us could never imagine, yet somehow throughout this story, there's an interconnection between what my guest went through and what we experience every day. Today, I sat down with Elena Breeze. She is a survivor of the 2013 Boston Marathon bombing. I was struck by her openness to talk about something most people could never imagine. Elena helps us understand that life's biggest moments have long-term impacts on our mental well-being, and it's never too late to recover. For me, this journey with PTSD, I just lost my self-esteem. I lost my confidence to be out in the world, to go to Target, to go to the movies, to eat at a restaurant, all of these things. So each time I would do something like that, it was almost like a feather in my cap and it would help me build my confidence for whatever was coming next. In today's episode, you will learn how to find hope after hardship, how to tap into your natural strengths, and the value of mindfulness. Listen as she candidly shares her story of recovery and trauma. Her story gives us an insider look into the resiliency of the human spirit. Welcome to another episode of, well, not perfect. Welcome to my guest, Elena. She is a 2013 Boston marathon bombing survivor and lives with post-traumatic stress disorder. Through her website, Still Blooming Me, Elena shares how she learned to embrace her trauma and mental challenges, advocate for herself, and grow from her experience. She is passionate about bringing awareness about PTSD and sharing resources that have helped her heal. Elena has contributed to various blogs, podcasts, and speaks publicly. Elena was a spectator at the time. Her husband was running the marathon, and she was in the stands directly across the bomb. Elena is a dedicated wife and mother. Her family lives in Phoenix, Arizona, and you can always find her at www.stillbloomingme.com and Instagram at stillbloomingme. So from there, I'm curious why that tagline, Still Blooming Me, can you tell us more about that? Oh gosh. Yeah, that's a good question. When I don't get asked very often, um, when, so when I was hospitalized in 2016, I had very few things to kind of find comfort in. And one of the things that they gave me there was kind of like a a composition book with a tiny little pencil. And so I just started journaling a ton. And, um, I think when I first started, I was like praying for stillness because my mind was crazy. I was shaking. I was very over medicated. I was suffering from a lot of, um, side effects from the medication. So I just needed like stillness (laughs) and, um, the blooming because I just flowers have always resonated with me. My maiden name is flowers in Spanish and we have lots of flowers around our house. So I just love flowers and they always kind of pop up and and give me signs when I need them. So the blooming, I felt like this journey was kind of me, not just growing, but blooming, trying to, to grow despite this really hard thing that I was handed. Um, so to grow beautifully, um, that's where the blooming comes from. And then me, it's obviously about me. My kids initials are also M and E. So, um, this, this journey is also for them. 
That's beautiful. It has such a ring to it when it says still blooming me. It sounds like it's in of itself still blooming me has that obvious context, but then it's broken down into three different ways. So that's really beautiful and really well thought of. Um, I can always appreciate that because I think when we're trying to communicate our feelings and trying to communicate how we're feeling, then finding that as a quick way is really powerful, especially in the power of social media and people trying to kind of figure out who you are and, you know, trying to support you. So that's a really beautiful background. Thank you. You had mentioned being in the hospital and that's something that I think people still find scary. Can you talk a little bit about what in your mind made you strong enough to make that decision and walk into the hospital yourself? Like what was the strength and the mindset, even at the time, if you didn't believe it, that you had, I mean, at the time it felt like my only, um, chance to survive because I was, I had been suffering with PTSD symptoms for a while, but they had, my symptoms had been triggered, um, on, on July, um, 14th, I believe is Bastille day in France that a few weeks before I was hospitalized, I caught some, um, footage on the evening news of that attack in Nice, France. And it just triggered like kind of my descent into acute PTSD symptoms where I finally stopped eating and sleeping. And, um, I was, I was going to die. I mean, I was seeing my death before me. It was really, really scary. And I think what kind of summoned the strength to walk through the doors was knowing I, it was like one or the other. I needed, I needed help very quickly. Um, now I didn't walk through the doors of the right facility for me. And that's something I think is important to note. If I had the chance to go back, I would have done it completely differently, (laughs) but, um, summoning the strength was just knowing I wanted to be here for my family. I wanted to see my kids grow up. I wasn't done here. And I knew that, and I knew I needed to take care of myself. And so that's where taking that step came from. Did you feel like it was an internal drive as much as external, meaning you wanted this for yourself, but you also had a lot of motivation because you had kids and a family relying on you? Yeah, I did. I mean, I, my kids were really young, uh, at the time of the bombing, they were six months old and three. So as a mom, I just was taking care of everyone around me and I really failed myself. Um, and that's why I think my PTSD got as bad as it, as it was, Uh, but yes, absolutely. Having the external factors of having a great family and court system and these two beautiful children and a a wonderful husband and very supportive parents and siblings and friends, I knew I could get through it with their help. So um, I also have the resources. I'm very lucky. I have the resources that I could um, invest in my health and, in my, um, in what it was going to take to, to heal. And I know that not everybody has that, but I also do believe that I was born with some certain gifts that helped me get through it. Uh, and I really, 
over the last five years, because I was hospitalized five years ago in August, I've really tapped into those gifts. So I was born a natural optimist. I always have looked on the bright side of life. And I think that that helped me a lot. I was also born with incredible amounts of patience and that has served me well because this has been long and this has been hard and it continues to stay with me today. Um, so gifts like that, I have really tapped into. Um, so it was definitely a combination of what was inside of me and what was around me that helped me a lot. I think what you're highlighting is that when you have strengths and you can identify them, you grow them and you really try to make sure that you invest your time thinking about them. Mm -hmm. If it's optimism and if it's having patience, then using that as much as you can in your days when you're struggling to build on rather than looking at what you don't have, such as maybe you don't have patience. Or if you don't have optimism, you know, you wouldn't be focusing on that. You would be focusing on what you do have, such as drive or, or passion. Um, you could focus on those things, which I'm sure you do, but we all kind of choose or resonate with one thing more than the other. And that's important to say, okay, I have these positive characteristics and these traits. Let's build on that rather than let's trying to create something I don't have, which is like a deficit. I think it's powerful. And did you do that consciously? Did a therapist or someone help you identify those strengths or did you just find them over time? It, it was things that I knew that I had. So um, it was easy to draw my attention towards them because it, it, they're gifts that I knew I used every day in my life. Um, but honestly, those things have continued to carry me through and I've been able to harvest other gifts uh, throughout my healing journey that have helped too. I'm just giving you those two examples because they come to mind. I think it's so important when you're going through a healing journey that you're able to focus on what you do have, because that's the easy thing to, to harvest and lean on. Um, it's really easy when you have mental health challenges to get stuck in what you don't have or, or in that cycle of bad self-talk all the time. So I think by focusing on the good things that you know you have and that you can work, you can lean on, it, it definitely helps. Something that we've been working on in the practice here at Simply Be is teaching people that there is a relationship with yourself called an intrapersonal relationship, that you have two people in relationships to themselves. So I have an I and a me. And by talking to myself in a positive way and by encouraging myself in a positive way, I'm creating an internal dialogue between the I and the me that is positive and healthy and encouraging. And so I can say, you're patient. You've got this. Take it one day at a time. Or you say, hey, you're an optimist. Let's go outside and look for something that's bright. Let's look for something that's positive. Let's get out of the house and do that. So you can be coaching yourself and a way to create that internal dialogue is either thinking about what would a ther what my therapist say to me, or what would a loved one say to me and trying to manifest that because oftentimes people around us speak more kindly to ourselves than we do. And so if you can't do it yourself yet, then what you can do is try to manifest it through imagining what someone else would say to you. And I'm hearing you kind of highlight these things 
about yourself, which tells me that you do understand that you have a relationship with yourself. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. And I, I think to touch back on what you mentioned before, my therapist did help me recognize these gifts. And, um, so it wasn't just me solo on my own, trying to figure out what do I do? You know, what, what's easy for me. Um, but yes, I do have, uh, almost to a fault sometimes a very strong relationship with myself, my feelings, my body, oftentimes a lot of my PTSD symptoms are somatic symptoms and they come out in painful ways or irritating and agitating ways and things that I notice that are happening with my body. So it's like a gift and a curse. (laughs) Um, But yes, I do have a strong relationship with myself. And you having a relationship with yourself is going to give you more insight and awareness when things aren't going well for you. Do you feel like you have early signs that something's not right? And what do you do when you first catch a symptom and you think, okay, this isn't feeling right. What do I do? Um, it's weird oftentimes. And I was just speaking to my therapist last week about this. So it's crazy that you're bringing it up. Um, Oftentimes I will almost see it happening before it happens. And I'm like, you know, oh God, here we go again. I'm going to have that situation with my heart where it's like, I have heart palpitations that are going to kind of start. And, um, and so I can kind of almost see these things happening before they do. And it's, it's weird. It's strange. It's hard to explain. Um, but I think it's just my body's way now, my body and my mind my mind are so in sync with each other. Um, it's like their way of communicating to each other and preparing me for whatever is going to come. So I think initially when I started doing this work, my reaction would have been to hold my breath and to kind of overthink what's, what I'm feeling and what's happening. And now Um, with the help of my trauma therapist and uh, with medication and a lot of other things that I do for myself. Um, I'm able to kind of sit with the feelings better um, and realize it's just information coming at me and I need to take some breaths and just uh, almost take a step back and observe observe it from up above instead of being so in it. Yeah, it's taken time and practice. What you're describing is mindfulness and objectivity by taking a step back, looking at the situation, not as you being attached to it, but you being slightly unattached to it. I say unattached because it's not detached. And there's a really clear difference between those two. Detached is unhealthy, unhelpful. Attached is the belief that what is, 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 and what will come, will come and removing yourself from results or removing yourself from the belief that, you know, what's going to happen. So being unattached is a way to pull back. And I've written about this before, and I've described it as a bird's eye view. So when you are a bird looking down at the trees and the forest, you have a much better perspective so that when you do go dive in, you kind of know where you're diving into and what you're dealing with compared to the birds who are on the ground level 
and they're always kind of wandering, but bumping up against trees and they never leave the forest and look down. You're, they're going to become distracted or they're going to become like kind of misinformed about the bigger picture. So this idea of like a bird's eye view is kind of pulling back unattached, taking inventory, what's happening, and then diving back in and kind of going into what you need to do next and how you're feeling and things like that. So what you're describing, it sounds like is a little bit of a flow. Like I'm in my body, I'm in my mind, I'm feeling these symptoms, but then I can pull back and observe and take inventory before I dive back in. There's something fluid about what you're saying. And I think it's really important to highlight for listeners because that's what we should be doing in our self-care, in our mental health is having a flow between I'm in it and then I'm out. I'm in it and then I'm out. And oftentimes therapy is really that place where you get out and get to kind of see it. Um, what's been your experience with therapy? Like what has been the gift or the experience that's been so powerful for you? Well, I've been working with an EMDR therapist now. Uh, we're going on four years. I Out of the hospital, I started with one EMDR therapist. I stuck with her for a little while. It just wasn't the right fit. And I wish I would have listened to myself sooner. But anyway, I'm with the right fit now. Um, and I think what has been the most beneficial for me with our working relationship is she's helped me gain so much clarity, um, in my, in my behaviors, in my reactions, in my inabilities to react differently. Um, God, she's helped me learn so much about me. Um, but she would tell you that I've done the work. Um, and I have, it's been a lot of work, <laughs> but, uh, I think just so much clarity and understanding of myself of PTSD and how it can manifest in my daily life and, um, clarity about my triggers and how to take care of myself through those. So, I mean, it's just, it's a, it's hard. We've been together for four years now, so I've learned a lot. The awareness, it sounds like that she's given you or she's giving you the space to become aware yourself is what she'd probably say that you are doing the work in her office and she's a guide, but she's not the driver. You're the driver and you're finding ways to really cope well. EMDR is such an amazing technique for anyone who's interested in really trying to find ways to physically change the wiring of the brain by using body parts or eyes or tapping and such to help the person reorient the brain into a different process rather than just trying to kind of think our way through, which is typically more talk therapy is just trying to think differently or talk differently. EMDR is more physical. And when you said somatic symptoms, that means physical symptoms. So doing a physical treatment for physical symptoms makes a lot of sense. And the therapy is moving towards more movement and more physical treatment in conjunction with the talk piece. So I think that you're, you know, really highlighting as an example, what types of therapy are out there 
for PTSD and ways that we can address those symptoms that aren't just talking about the problem, but addressing the problem in some really creative ways. Were you always open-minded to those ways? Were you ever a little unsure of it? Did it feel a little too new age for you? Like how open were you to EMDR? I mean, when I came out of the hospital, if you told me to run through a chicken coop naked and that would cure me, I was willing to do that. So I would say my open-mindedness was, I mean, I was just ready. I was a piece of clay and I was ready for all the things to mold me. Um, And on this journey, I've done a lot. I mean, I have done hypnotherapy, float therapy, acupuncture is one of my favorite things to do so much so that I've been considering going to school to treat, uh, to become an acupuncturist. And I'm still kind of trying to work through that, but um, auricular therapy, which is uh, ear seed acupressure therapy. I became certified myself so that I could treat myself and treat others. So I've just been open-minded to all the ways that I could heal because I thought if if any of these things helped me even just a little bit, then that was going to be a success. And um, EMDR and all of these things together, I think, have really propelled me forward in a way that I might not have had if I wasn't so open-minded and wasn't willing to do all the work and research. And I mean, because all of this came from my own research. And, um, yeah, and I keep going, I keep learning about new therapies that are out there. And I'm very grateful that we live in this time where mental, mental health is kind of losing its stigma. We're learning more about it. We're learning more about the brain and how it works and brain health. And so I just feel very lucky that I have PTSD right now, um, when it's, it's, it's more accepted and, um, people are working at it and trying to fix it. So I like what you said a minute ago is if it helps me a little bit, then I'm going to do it. And the little steps to feeling better is what it takes. It's not this big chunk of pie that you take. And then all of a sudden it's fixed. You have to take little bites over and over again every day. And sometimes they kind of stick with you and you kind of feel full. And then other days they don't stick with you and you don't feel full at all, but then you have to just keep kind of taking those little bites every day until it accumulates to something. And that's something that I've been realizing in my own mental health is that every day, if I take little bites of self-care and conscious decisions about the way that I schedule myself and the way that I communicate or make decisions then the next day it's a little bit better. And the next day it's a little bit better, not always, but I realized that it's not this big, powerful, you know, magic experience that changes you. It's not one therapy session. It's not even a year of therapy. It's the type of shower you take or bath. It's the type of lunch you pack. It's the, do you go for a walk or do you take a nap? Do you make dinner? Do you order dinner out? Do you go to bed early? Do you stay up with friends? Like for me, my mental health is like bite-sized moments every day that just creates the sustainability. And when I'm not making little choices for my mental health, eventually I can feel its consequences, but you know, everyone's mental health is different. That's just a fact, but I know mine is kind of 
reflective of my little choices. And that has been really powerful because then I know that a little choice is going to mean something to me in the future. So that walk versus a nap, sometimes I need a nap and that, and I shouldn't feel guilty about that. Um, and sometimes I need to I walk take naps every day. <laughs> so I wouldn't feel guilty about that. Yeah. Well, I believe that napping is definitely becoming more and more recognized as a way to sustain the energy that we have to put out when we are really trying to exert, whether it's just exert the, you know, energy to be up in the day or pushing yourself even further. Napping is definitely, um, underrated, but also very judged. I don't know if you feel that way, but I kind of feel like it has a bad rap. Yeah. I don't feel that way. I find for me with PTSD, if I have too much going on, like yesterday was a really busy day and I had a really hard time sleeping last night. And so I find for me, I almost get very overstimulated, um, when I have too much going on and then it affects my rest. You would think it, it would make me sleep even better to be that overtired and exhausted, but that's the opposite for me. So naps are kind of that time to bring myself, to keep myself in this very calm state. (laughs) I wanted to touch on what you were talking about with your day-to-day self-care and and how that translates to your mental health. For me, this journey with PTSD, I just lost my self-esteem. I lost my confidence to be out in the world, to go to Target, to go to the movies, to eat at a restaurant, all of these things. So each time I would do something like that, it was almost like a feather in my cap and it would help me build my confidence for whatever was coming next. And um, so I really, that really resonated with me, what you said earlier. Hi everyone, Audrey here with a quick little offer for you. I know that most of you will agree with me when I say Mondays can be tough, tiring, unmotivating, you get the gist. What if I told you you could start your week off feeling motivated and inspired instead? I created a membership program called Mondays with Audrey to do just that. Every Monday, you'll see me in your inbox with inspiration on a topic of the month, anything from sticking to your goals to setting healthy boundaries to mastering your morning routine. Each new month kicks off with a new topic and a new video followed by weekly emails to keep you motivated and accountable. This program is the place where I can stretch my wings, be myself, and give candid advice from the heart. Sound up your alley? Learn more at www.simplybecounseling.net slash Mondays with Audrey and get access to a free month using the code wellnotperfect. Join me on Mondays and make it the best day of the week. I think that as we talk about this more, people relate to it and the stigma of mental health decreases because when you hear all these things, you realize, oh, well, that sounds like me. And if that sounds like me, then I can't be so afraid of mental health or the stigma because now I feel connected or I feel a part of that rather than that's somebody else. That's an issue or a problem that makes me uncomfortable. So I think, I know it's kind of a long way of saying this, but I kind of feel like by you talking about your symptoms and your experiences, and they feel so relatable that in of, in of itself is breaking the stigma. Does that make sense? I hope so. 
I hope so. I wanted to carve out a little space in the mental health field or in really in the PTSD world that wasn't so military focused, that was kind of lighter and brighter and more and more um, relatable. So thank you. Yeah, I feel very connected to it. And I think that PTSD is also being recognized not as these big traumatic experiences, but common traumas, which I had a therapist, um, a podcast host as well. Her name is Sarah. And she was talking a lot about how there's common traumas that can exhaust the body and exhaust the mind. And it does, it can or cannot be, um, events such as the Boston Marathon bombing and making it an open door for people to kind of identify with. So it's not as if they don't deserve the treatment or deserve the recognition because people do judge themselves saying it's not that bad. I don't need it or I don't deserve it or I haven't had trauma. Yeah. The trauma, it doesn't matter what the trauma is. The symptoms are the same. So you can get into that um, game of comparing trauma, but I don't think it's necessary at all. In fact, um, I don't know if you've read Dr. Edith Ager's book, The Gift or wait, no, The Choice. I've read them both. They're both great. But in The Choice, she she's a Holocaust survivor and she shares her trauma. And as I was reading the book, I'm like, wow, we have the same symptoms, but I can't imagine living what through what she went through, you know, and she would say as a therapist herself, she can't imagine living through or living through sexual assault or some of these other things. So we just can't get into that. You know, uh, this isn't a game. We don't get more points for having something worse happen to us. It's literally just a physical mental manifestation of that trauma. And it doesn't matter what, what caused it. Exactly. It's also the brain's defense because it's minimizing our own experiences so that we don't have to feel the pain as much, but that eventually gets us in the end. Cause if we minimize and invalidate our experiences, then they manifest in other ways and they come out sideways. If you've ever heard that term before, you know, anger comes out sideways or anxiety comes out sideways. And that's because we've defended against it. We don't let our bodies or our minds process it. And then it comes out in ways that get, you know, negative attention and, um, we get distracted from the root problem. Um, I think about, you know, common things that we see in our practice and it can include a child who hits and kicks and the behaviors are getting consequences at school, but really there's something deeper going on with them and their mind has just defended against it. So when people are listening to the show, I want them to just also look at other people and think, is that really what's going on? Are they actually an aggressive person or is there something deeper? And can I ask them what's going on and taking that time to pause and ask? Yeah. I, gosh, what you just touched on brought up and I can, I can share this because it's, um, I mean, I've worked through it in therapy for a while, but EMDR therapy takes you back to your childhood, you know, it really takes you back to your birth and even further into generational trauma and all of this. And, uh, when I was young, my parents had a lot of marital problems and, and, um, so that kind of planted in me, the feeling of needing to please everybody and keep it light and, and kind of be the peacemaker and take care of my younger siblings. And it, and the, it, 
grew a very a very large sense of responsibility in me and um, kind of that need to make things perfect. And so it, it was those little traumas as a kid that added up to these big behaviors as a big kid, right? And um, it, they just kind of, those experiences stick with us, don't they? They do. I mean, we are a product. Um, we got built over time in a sense, and it does show um, in adulthood. And when we're at our lowest um, capacity to cope, is usually when our childhood behaviors and defenses show up. So if I'm at a lower capacity because I haven't slept well, I haven't eaten well, I haven't been exercising and I'm stressed at work, I'm at a low capacity and mentally and emotionally to function. So what am I going to look like? I'm going to look more like my seven, eight, nine-year-old self because my level of coping has really regressed. And I'm going to show up that way. So I might be more irritable. I might be more um, expressive or quote dramatic. You know, there's these things that we're going to show up. And so part of what we have to do is realize that when we're at a low capacity state, that we need to really get back to what we're missing, the sleep, the food, the exercise, and get out of the trigger that's the problem because it's never about the trigger, right? It's never about the person who cut you off while you're driving and you lash out and get angry. It's not the driver who you're really upset about. Typically it's something that you're sitting with. Um, and that could be physically or mentally. I, it, there's something called halts H A L T S. So it's just a checkpoint for people to be like, okay, am I hungry? angry, lonely, tired, sick, or sad. I added the last S's because I thought that those were helpful. So whenever I'm working with clients and we are talking about triggers, we're talking about hard moments, talking about hard weeks, we just go through halts and we kind of think about, well, on a really basic level of human functioning, were you at a lower capacity? And if yes, then let's talk about why you were hungry and why you were tired. Let's not talk about the person who cut you off because that's just a distraction oftentimes. And it's not really getting back to the root root issue. So, um, when you talked about going back into your childhood stuff, it reminds me of how we operate on a, on a level that most people aren't really aware of. Yeah. I mean, many things have come up from my childhood. But that's just an example of something that gave me the clarity to see why it was influencing my behavior now as an adult, now as a wife, now as a mother, now as a sister or daughter or whatever. Um, it's just, oh gosh, it's such an interesting ride. It is. And I think for someone like you to go through life and have the experiences that you've had and then come to the other side and be a mental health advocate. That means that you're doing your work and mental health advocacy is a big theme because people do not have to be therapists to be advocates. And during months like this, there's many things you can do to support the advocacy. Um, how do you show your advocacy? Like what are your efforts that have made you feel more confident in fitting into that role and improving the world of mental health? Oh, there's a few things I do. So 
one of the things that's nearest and dearest to my heart is an organization called Strength to Strength. They support victims of terror and their families all across the world. And this month in particular is one of those months where we're more aware of it because of suicide prevention, but also, you know, the 20th anniversary of 9-11 is this coming Saturday. And um, one of my dearest friends is a 9-11 survivor. This organization has connected us um, for support reasons. And then also, I, I love anytime I can share my story. Um, it's really important to me to continue to do that because I heal more, I think, from it than anyone else does hearing it. And I think it helps build awareness that PTSD is something that touches many of us. And it can be from an event years ago, and now you're having symptoms, and you don't know why you're having the symptoms. And, and so I think that going forward, that's going to be very important, because we've been through this collective trauma recently with COVID and all of our political and social issues that really the whole world is going through it right now. And I think in years to come, many people are going to be having PTSD symptoms and they're not going to be connecting it to what we've just been through. We've been asked to process a lot in a very short amount of time. And I don't know, I'm like, like, I know my cup is overflowing. I'm sure everybody's is. So I think my work will be important for doctors and nurses and people like you and I who are just moving through life and living with these symptoms and they're not making the connection back. And I want to make sure that my story reiterates my symptoms and the connection back to the bombing and me not having the awareness, awareness at the time to make that connection. And that is why I got so sick. So if we can make those connections sooner, I believe we can help people really heal sooner too. Yeah. And that's the key to life to really make sure that we're using our experiences and creating a purpose for them and creating a sense of reasoning for why we are going through this and how we can help ourselves and help other people. And I think that's the key to recovery and mental health is making it with reason or with cause with purpose after the fact. And that's a great example of how you and many other mental health advocates are doing that. And I'm just so grateful to hear your story and to spend time with you because it inspires me and it inspires everyone who's listening. And that's the whole purpose of this show is just to keep people's stories, inspiring other people. So thank you for coming on today. Thank you for having me, Audrey. I appreciate it. Okay. Well, thank you for being here. And this is another episode of well, not perfect. Thank you for listening to season two. Make sure you never miss an episode by hitting the subscribe button and consider leaving me a review. And for more information on all things podcast, check us out at Instagram. Well, not perfect and DM us any questions you have and content that you'd love to see this season. See you next week.